Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. All of your work with this, what do you think are the stories that could topple governments? Uh, I think for me it was very important to realize that it's not only governments of autocratic regime kleptocrats being in the data, but that at the same time it's Western or leaders of Western governments being in the data, like the Icelandic prime minister. And Furthermore, for me, it's like we are always, at least in Germany, we speak about tax havens in the context of taxes and tax minimization and tax evasion. But for me, uh, the Panama Papers, they do show that it's not only about taxes. It's about criminals hiding their wrongdoings. It's about sanctioned people uh, trying to go on with the business, although they are sanctions. And it's, I think this is the reason why it, this uh, topic should matter all of us, because in, there's are so many aspects where we are concerned with this uh, topic of offshore companies and tax havens, because they—this is a completely a parallel world. It's a secret offshore world, and we should, I think, shed some light into this uh, world. And um, Michael Hudson, on the issue of Ponzi schemes in the United States. Yes. Uh, we haven't reported on those yet, but we do have—you uh, know, the thing you have to remember is, anytime there's a major fraud case, uh, Madoff, any of those kind of cases, there will be an offshore element. When the money—when the money is, is so large, when the schemes are so big, you need offshore to help, help cover your tracks and help, help hide the loot. And we do have—we don't have Madoff-level Ponzi schemers. There's—you know, he's—his his Ponzi scheme was the biggest of all time. But we do have, have fraudsters based in America uh, who have been doing business with this, with this uh, law firm, and we, we will be reporting them down the road. Mm -hmm. um, I've been looking at David Sirota's article. He had— uh, uh, tweeted, email shows Clinton's State Department pushing Panama Pact and warnings it would help the rich hide money. Um, the, the Panama FDA pushed for by Obama and Clinton watchdog groups said effectively barred the United States from cracking down on questionable activities instead of requiring concessions of the Panamanian government on banking rules and regulations, combating tax haven abuse in Panama could violate the agreement. Should the U.S. embark on such an endeavor, it could be exposed to fines from international authorities. Right. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, the United States has taken a role, and it, it has, seems in many ways to be working at cross-purposes. The U.S. Justice Department has gone after Swiss banks in a big way, gotten huge settlements with some of the biggest banks and even some of the smaller Swiss banks, and, and put pressure. But uh, there, there are many other examples of the United States uh, either, either having policies which, which encourage uh, money being moved around secrecy, secretly, or uh, where uh, we're turning a blind eye. You know, the, there are states like Delaware and Nevada where there's just as much secrecy, just as much privacy. If you want to get a, a company, if you want to have a shell company and, and not, you know, not have your name publicly attached to it, you can do that. Um, if we haven't lost him yet, uh, Frederick Obermeyer in Munich, uh, new headline in The Wall Street Journal, India launches probe after Panama Papers reports. The Indian finance minister said New Delhi will set up a multi-agency panel to examine each of the people named in the report. How prominent is India in this wave of um, uh, documents? Um, India turns up in the context of dozens of very, very interesting cases, for example, where our colleague Rita Saran specialized on. 
Um, what she found that was amazing, it was uh, tracks leading to prominent um, politicians. But I don't want to tell too much, because I don't know and haven't followed her uh, reporting that closely that I would know which she already had reported and which not. So I'm sorry for that. Well, finally, Michael Hudson, what does this mean for international collaborative journalism? I mean, how many journalists, how many newspapers worked on these documents that have been revealed over the last year? What, what? The New York Times said they didn't even know that this was being worked on. An uh, interesting public editor wrote a piece, like, why aren't they doing more on this? Why aren't they featuring this? Well, they weren't included in this. Um, and they said they're looking into it now. Right. More than 100 news organizations from more than 70 countries have worked on this. For how long? For uh, most of them for, for, for more than a year. Um, you know, we start, you know, we've been doing these collaborative projects for, for a long time. Uh, we were talking in terms of dozens of people involved in, in earlier projects. Now, this, this current project, more than 370 journalists around the world. Uh, and, and as I said, it's all about people realizing that that you, you the more you give, the more you share with your with your your fellow journalists, with your colleagues, the more you're going to get back in the end. And that you don't have to, you know, this sort of cutthroat competition that that it often characterizes uh, journalism. Uh, that doesn't have to be the way forward. So this week on the show, we're speaking with Hector Asuguero, who is running for office in New Jersey in Congressional District Number 8. Welcome, Hector. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I want to, right off the bat, talk to you about political corruption and money laundering. You're an attorney. Uh, you specialize in anti-money laundering fraud. So tell us uh, just a little bit of your background in that area and, one of, and just one or two examples of some of the most egregious things that you've seen. Great. So, yeah, uh, I went to law school and I kind of always knew I didn't want to be a traditional lawyer. So I'd taken a course on combating corruption. And my professor, Elizabeth Spawn, she's actually on a list in China. Anytime she's in China, the authorities follow her around wow. because she's a fighter against corruption. And when I got out of law school, I got plugged into some people who were in this JD preferred field. So I'm not practicing law, though I do have my bar, and it's called anti-money laundering. So what I do is I review wire transfers, usually international transfers, usually business transfers that spread all across the globe, basically because the U.S. is the reserve currency of the world. Any international wire or most international wires are cleared through a U.S. bank, and that gives us a really unique opportunity to review that activity what I do is I investigate the parties involved in those transactions. And if I can't substantiate that activity for whatever reason, okay. I will file what is called a suspicious activity report, which goes to the Treasury Department, and they will be the ones who would prosecute that activity. So how much of that involves uh, very wealthy elites and politicians? A lot. So my, I guess my best um, experiences are with something you might have heard of called the Panama Papers. Yeah. Uh, that's that came through my desk when I, I I remember the morning I was sitting at breakfast and I saw the news wire come across this thing called the Panama Papers and I was like, oh man, when I get to work on Monday, this is going to be the first thing I have to do. And and in fact, it was. 
there was a scandal in Brazil known as Operation Car Wash that made a lot of news because this Brazilian oil and construction companies were working together to bribe politicians essentially all across the globe. And the most recent one that I handled was something called the Russian laundromat, where an Estonian bank was being used to funnel money from the Russian mafia all across Western Europe and in some cases the United States. And so those all three of those investigations not just involve heavy money laundering, but also political elites that were trying to hide money that they had very likely stolen from somebody. Why am I not surprised? I always um, think that the biggest part of the Russian scandal isn't this idea that there's been troll farms or, or they influenced our election per se, but it's really about global oligarchy because the oligarchs in Russia learned how to be oligarchs from Americans, right? Uh, from the... Yeah from Harvard, from Larry Sumner, all these guys that were involved in that. But let's go back and talk about the Panama Papers for a second. Um, For folks that are unaware, this was pretty much shell corporations that were set up by uh, some attorneys down in Panama, and they were helping these folks hide money in shell corp under shell corp under shell corp and um, not paying. It was like a tax haven for not paying any taxes, et cetera. what part of that do you think was most detrimental? I mean, this got some press, but you would have thought that it would have had more press. Yeah. So the reason it didn't get a lot of press, I would say, is for two big reasons. Number one, the uh, investigative journalist who brought this to light yeah. died when her car exploded. That's right. So so these are the sorts of things that happen to you when you start to investigate these sorts of people. And number two, the people that were involved are essentially your most powerful people on the globe. A lot of people want to know why Jeffrey Epstein, people knew what he was doing for a long time and nobody brought it up. And you have to look no further than his social connections, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and, and and I think the same thing applies to this president. People say, you know, Donald Trump is clearly a money launderer. He is in the real estate and casino industries, which are hyper high risk industries when it comes to money laundering. How is this guy walking around free? Well, he makes a lot of really important connections. He's been a donor to a lot of politicians way before he himself was involved in politics. And doing these sorts of things helps you cover your bases and keeps the authorities from sniffing around too much. Because if anybody wants to be sort of a cowboy and go after uh, these high-end money launderers or oligarchs, somebody above them will say, no, don't do that. You're either getting a desk job or if you're a police officer, you're on traffic patrol now. So yeah, yeah, there are systems in place that keep these things from coming to light. Yeah, no, 100%. The corruption is very broad and deep. It transcends both parties. And I wish more people would realize that. The platonomy isn't specific to the Republican Party. A big chunk of them including Epstein. I mean, look at a lot of his donations. And look, you can go back through Trump's career and see where he gave a lot of money to Democratic politicians. So the platonomy feathers the platonomy's nest. That transcends parties. And and this is the system that we should be fighting. I don't think that we can really, at this point, have a conversation about right versus left ideals because the platonomy's ideals, it's it's a whole set of principles that occur versus the 99%. And if we don't resolve that first... We can't really have the other conversation because these things are so intertwined, right? The corruption is so agree. deep. Yeah, agree. I mean, there's really there are not two parties in America. There's only no. one party, and it's the business party, That's right. and it transcends both parties. 
That's right. And I think that sort of speaks to our current election cycle. You know, we have this whole, uh, you know, so Biden's now the, the presumptive nominee, right? So you have this whole conversation that's happening. You know, Bernie's turned around and now endorsed Biden and is trying to convince his supporters to do the same. But I don't think that they're doing a good job of answering the question that a lot of the leftists are putting forward. And that question is, yeah. is eight years of Biden really that much better than four more years of Trump? And yeah. I think that's an actually I think that's a very salient question, because the problem, again, is the corrupt system and the corrupt system that sort of put Biden into that poll position in the first place. Right. They're saying this is all part and parcel to the problem. And the only way to really fix the problem is to fix the system whole hog. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I completely agree. And, that, and that's why I think it's fair for people on the left to have those questions mm -hmm. to say, you know, we want something different. We just don't right. want lipstick on the pig. That's yeah. not good enough for us. Yeah. Lipstick on a pig. That's exactly right. Um, so you have one of your I thought was really interesting in this area. One of your proposals is called the Anti-Panama Papers um, Act. And I want you to walk us through this platform because I think you're 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 in a unique perspective since this is what you do for a living to really address the ins and outs of the problem here in a, in a way that most Americans don't see. They don't see this stuff, right? And they hear very little of it being reported by the mainstream media. So walk yeah. us through your Anti-Panama Papers Act and why you think this is a necessary component to cleaning up corruption. Great. So great. I'd love to walk it through. So we're going to start with the problem. What is the problem? Is that you have this very corrupt infrastructure that you were talking about with the Panama Papers. You have these shell corporations that are set up in places like Panama, Cyprus, the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, places with really lax tax laws, where you get to set up what are called nominee companies, where somebody who is a local attorney will basically take a bunch of money to set themselves up as the registered representative of these companies. And there's no way of finding who the real person who brought this money in, who they really are and how they got that money. Yeah. So what my Anti-Panama Papers Act does is it tries to attack that infrastructure of opaque shell companies. Now, how do we do that? The number one thing that I think would help us a lot is having strong global beneficial ownership rules. So what does that mean? A beneficial owner is the person who is going to directly benefit, the person who earned that money and who is trying to set up this shell corporation. Right. Who is this person? No more nominee ownerships where you get to have a local person in the Cayman Islands who is definitely willing to take a tremendous sum of money so that they could charge you a fee, a 10% fee on that huge sum of money and set themselves up as the stand-in, the sort of face of this shell company. Mm -hmm. Because just like you said, you'll basically set up a shell company that will set up another shell company right. that'll set up another shell company. They'll set one up in Panama, which will own another one in the uh, Cayman Islands, which right. will own another one in Cyprus. And it's basically just a jumping game where you're trying to find out who really owns this. Right. If we had strong beneficial ownership rules, we would be able to go directly to the name of the person who directly owns this shell company, who directly earned that money and right. know what they're doing, 
how they earn that money and what they intend to use this shell company for. Because in fact, all they're really doing is they're trying to evade taxes. Mm -hmm. That's the that's the ultimate goal of doing all of this. Right. You're setting these companies up in places where people are not going to ask for a lot of paperwork, where people are not going to charge you local taxes on this money. And essentially, nobody really knows. Uh, I've seen a lot of documentaries where people will wear masks so that they're not exposing who they are, but they'll walk through a, an office building and they'll open up a room and it's full of boxes and they'll say, yeah, we have 30,000 uh, shell companies <laughs> registered in this room. All at the same and, address, right. Yeah, all at the same address. And there are places in Arizona, in Delaware, in Florida, yeah. uh, specific street addresses that I can tell you every time I'm investigating a company and it comes back to this particular street in Florida, I know that there's something here to look at because you have so many companies constantly using the same address that you know they can't be legitimate. If right. you Google map this location, you find a little shack at the corner of a street and there's no way that a company earning millions of dollars is registered right. or operating out of this location. Wow. Yeah, no, I've seen it. I, I, it's it's amazing to me that this is, and it's all perfectly legal. That's the problem, which is why we need to yeah. make sure that it is no longer legal. It's, it's uh, and you know, let's talk about some of the politicians that are involved in this. The uh, Panama Papers exposed many politicians, not only in the United yeah. States, but in Great Britain as well. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, when you're a politician, you clearly are not supposed to make a lot of money. So right. when I mean, th there was kind of like a recent scandal that broke with a couple of senators who had gotten the COVID uh, briefing that was classified right. and and used that information to essentially engage in what anybody would call insider trading. Yeah. Right. These sorts of things. I mean, it, it made a lot of news because COVID is such a big story. But these things happen all the time. Yeah. Uh, politicians get advanced knowledge of things that are going to happen. And some of them will use that information to their financial benefit, right? But you can't have that money registered in your name or else it's clear. So right. what do you do? You set up an IRA account in your husband's name and your daughter's name and your son's name. And you have it buy stocks in another right. person's name. And then you have that money sent overseas so that nobody really knows what's going on. Right. That's another part of my beneficial ownership rules is that you can't set things up in family members' names. You have to have this wide net that's cast of close associates family members so that if you have the you know in in my industry there's something called uh peps peps politically exposed persons and that sort of only touches on the person and their immediate family but colleagues should count cousins aunts all yeah. these people should count because if you don't that's these are the people that these corrupt officials will turn to and set accounts up in their names to hide who's really owning that money. Right. Right. You know, and in fact, it reminds me of that whole uh, slightly scandalous situation a couple months ago with Ro Khanna, where it turned out his wife owns seven or eight million dollars worth of fossil fuel industry investments. 
And um, he was getting called out for that because he's supposed to be a politician that represents the Green New Deal and is against these sort of things. And his response was, well, those are my wife's investments. They're not mine. And I'm not really going to tell my wife how she's supposed to invent. If I invest, if I do that, then I'm kind of a mansplainer, right? But I didn't really buy that. (laughs) Yeah, no, you shouldn't. Come on, You should not buy that. Your wife shouldn't uh, be owning them either because you guys are married. This is like a joint thing. So, yeah, that stuff happens. We have to treat married couples as one person because, in fact, that's how it's going to operate. And and for all intents and purposes, that's how it's going to operate. It's not like your wife is going or your husband or anybody is going to invest and you're not going to know about it. You're not going to hear about it. You know, that that's that's just not how things work. Yeah, it didn't it didn't seem like a relevant excuse to me. And I I know full well if I was. Rokan, if I was a politician and these were the things that I was advocating, I would have a real problem with my spouse having those types of investments. There would have been That's a conversation. Sure. Like, you guys are yeah. obviously not simpatico if this is what the situation is, right? Uh, right. How, how married are you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It seemed very weird to me. I mean, obviously, there's even more egregious examples of that out there. Um, and speaking of egregious examples, I want to talk about your opponent, who is a Democrat. He's a Cuban-American. Uh, he yep. is very, very bought. I did a precursory sort of investigation about the kinds of money that he's been taking into his campaign, and it's chock full of the usual suspects. So his number one uh, contributor is Desert Caucus. And so folks that aren't familiar with Desert Caucus, they're, they're sort of right of APEC, right? So this is a pro-Israeli um, fundraising group. They have members that pay $1,200 a year to be a member, and then they decide which politicians they're giving their money to. But if you look at the kinds of things that they promote, they're, they're very much to the right of what APEC's promoting. They're fine with the illegal settlements. They're fine moving the uh, capital into the west, pot, the west side of Jerusalem so it's in the uh, Palestinian territory. They're fine with expanding into the Golan Heights. Um, so they're fine keeping Gaza under uh, under siege. So very right wing. So your your um, opponent uh, takes money from them. What, what are your positions in the Israeli-Palestine area? Yeah, I mean, I am a very strong advocate for Palestinian rights. The Palestinians are living in an open-air prison. Yeah. Uh, the settlements are absolutely illegal, and we should not be co-signing this sort of, honestly, international like human rights abuses. I mean, yeah. there's really no other way to say it. Um, yeah, we and my opponent, the reason that he's so, he's really a hawk on yeah. so many different fronts. He's never found an in, uh, an international intervention that he did not like. <laughs> and that obviously goes for uh, the Israeli conflict. He's completely yeah. pro the expansion of Israel, however far it may go. And I am a strong fighter for the rights of Palestinians because right. what they're living in is an apartheid state and yep. we should not be in support of that. We absolutely should not. I agree. I, I do think Israel is an apartheid state. I think that's clear. There are two sets of, of rules there, one for the Arabs and one for the, the Jewish folks. And here's the thing. The, this is what bothers me. As somebody that has Jewish uh, heritage, this is what bothers me. These folks don't give a shit about the Jewish people. You kind of hit the nail on the head when you said he's never met an intervention that he doesn't like, right? This is sort of a, a neoist uh, version of the world. They want to have a very realist-centered foreign policy 
because it serves corporate interests abroad, right? The, the point Absolutely. of having Israel there and being friends with Israel isn't that you're pro-Jewish folks, that you want to protect them from pogroms. It's because of where they're located and they serve as part of a security position against yeah. uh, all of the Arab oil states, right? That's what this is about. Yes. It's got nothing, yeah, it's, it's... nothing to do with anti-Semitism whatsoever. Yet they time and time and again paint it as being against anti-Semitism. So it's, it's pretty egregious to me. Yeah, um, and I love how Democrats do that a lot. They try they to do. sort of set up a token yeah. and say, well, if you don't support this, you must be an anti-Semite. That's right. Ignoring the fact that this is essentially an imperial expansion. Yeah. Well, you know, even worse than that, the worst part of the tokenization is they actually can't even come, they can't even come to terms with the fact that no group is monolithic in its beliefs. And they yeah. only want to listen to people that agree with them from that group. And if somebody steps yeah. outside of that sort of the thought reservation that they think the, these folks should have, then all of a sudden, you know, it's all the gloves come off and they're nasty as hell, right? They don't, yeah. they don't really respect any of the groups that they tokenize. I mean, it's the same thing with the firewall. I mean, that is the most racist shit out there, in my opinion. You're going to tell, you're going to say that these folks are your firewall. That means you can do whatever yeah. you want, but you think you're entitled to their support and their votes. Like, really? Yeah. Do you hear yourselves? Agreed. Yeah, it's very frustrating. It's frustrating. As somebody that, you know, I'm approaching 50 years old and I've been a Democratic Party person for my whole life. I'm just at my wit's end. I don't, <laughs> I like so little of the Democratic Party establishment. I don't even, I'm at the point now where I don't even want to be part of the party, I think. I'm looking at like other alternatives for the first time. I think 2020 has shown me so clearly that they're not willing to listen to, to anybody that has a different point of view on the left. They would rather have Trump in office, and I don't understand this. It's very baffling to me. Yeah, so I, I definitely say that a lot, that sometimes I really do believe that the Democratic establishment would almost prefer to have Trump in office because it gives them a convenient boogeyman to say, hey, I didn't really want to do this. Right. It's just that he's in the White House and I can't stop it. You know, exactly. when it comes to war, when it comes to Wall Street, exactly. it gives them a convenient excuse for supporting the things that they always wanted to support. Right. And while I understand the frustration that so many people have with the Democratic establishment, unfortunately, the way that our political system is set up, I know. it really does handicap any third party fight. So honestly, yeah. I really think that the best solution is to reform the parties from the inside out, to get inside of the Democratic Party elect people at the local level, at the county committee level, even at your local house level. And mm -hmm. I mean, look at look at what AOC by herself has done. She is one yeah. seat that has completely changed the Democratic Party with one seat. You could talk to the rest of the squad, right? There's four, four women have completely almost brought the establishment to its knees. And I think that they really are the prototype for how we can get a Democratic Party that represents what we want it to represent instead of those corporate elites. Yeah, part of me still believes that. And a part of me is just so frustrated in this particular moment in time when it comes to the presidential campaign that I'm looking yeah. at that going, are they really capable of being reformed? I hear what you're saying. What choice do we have? I'm just a little bit exhausted right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel you, and I hear that all the time. What I tell people is don't abandon the fight. We are going to have good years. We're going to have bad years. And this is a long-term struggle. We are never going to just win. And, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people sort of thought that when Obama won, that was like it. Like, yeah. okay, guys, we've reached the end of the road. There's nothing left to fight for. And, and look at what happened. How wrong so, we were. <laughs> 
Yeah, how wrong we were. So, so the and and this is coming from somebody who voted for Obama twice yeah, and no, thought it was too. great. And yeah. and it just shows us like this fight doesn't end. We have to be no. in it for the long haul. We cannot let this go. I agree with that. And you know, in an interesting way though, Obama was a big eye-opener for a lot of progressives because he promised hope and change and he never delivered on those promises and all of those the entire progressive side of the democratic party who had believed that that was going to happen i sort of think it it caused a bit of an awakening in in the sense that they were more in tune to the things that had been going on for decades previously i mean this isn't a new thing the democratic party has been trying to serve two masters now for decades master number one is the working class that they believe they still ascribe to but but the second one is the corporate donors that they are unwilling to let go of. And though that yeah. element, the corporate donors, wasn't always there. They started coming into the party in the mid-1970s, right? You can see the transition. So this is yeah. where we are. But I think unless, unless the party is willing to return to its roots, to really serving the needs of the working class folks in this country, I, I don't see any solutions in sight. And I think that's why fixing corruption is so important. Um, he also takes money from the, uh, okay, so I want to talk about real estate development money for a second, because this yeah. is also a huge problem in California. In, in New Jersey, New California, New York as well, you see a lot of situations where the rents are entirely unaffordable. And, yeah. you know, you cannot possibly make the claim that that there's not enough housing stock and that's why rents are going up because this is absolutely false. We have empty housing stock all over downtown LA. So the folks that own this stuff, they are real estate investment trusts, they're millionaires, they're all kinds of things. And again, this is something that transcends both party, but the, the Democratic Party is also addicted to the money that they get from these folks. So one in particular that I wanted to talk to you about is uh, Roseland Property. They're there in New Jersey. They also own some, they're a REIT. They also own some property in Massachusetts. But it looks like they sort of specialize in waterfront properties. So they've bought down some, bought some of the older properties, torn them down and put up these luxury housing units, right? So they're one of the biggest contributors to your opponent. Um, What is your plan for fixing some of this. I know that you're running a, a clean campaign and that you're not taking corporate money. And I know that you have a platform uh, for affordable housing, but how yep. do we fix the the intersection of these two things within the Democratic Party, in your opinion? Yeah, so looking at Rosalind's website, like I recognize so many of the properties on their website because they're just as you described, they're these luxury high rises, yeah. nobody can afford to live in them. And that's why rents are going up. In fact, not many of them even get sold. A lot of them sit empty. And the reason that this is allowed to go on and on is because these developers are getting what are called tax abatements from the local politicians. So that's what they're trading their donations for. They will help you get reelected, but you have to agree to help them get these lucrative tax deals that they literally do not care if these units get sold because their profits are literally built in. Um, A little known, not that secret secret is that here in Jersey city, one of the bigger developers is a guy by the name of Jared Kushner. Oh yes. He is the biggest slumlord around. One of the biggest slumlords in this area. And the, politicians who are mostly democrats are absolutely addicted to these donations so the way that we attack this specific problem is number one 
we're going to assess a tax on these real estate developers that zeroes out your tax abatement. So if nice. you're getting a okay. $5 million tax abatement yeah. to build these luxury real estate property, we're going to assess a federal tax worth $5 million on you next year so that you're not going to have built in profits. You have to actually, you know, this is a capitalist bastion. You have to actually take a risk yeah. and put up these developments and find out if somebody wants to buy them or not. You know, that's Indeed. what I kind of always heard about this capitalist system is that you're taking a risk and you might make a profit you might not nobody yeah. this is not built in um you're gonna win heads i win tails you lose sort of system right. which is what they want that's really what they want and then what else we're gonna do is we're gonna implement a vacancy tax right so if you're sitting on all these units and they're empty we're going to assess a tax equal to the rent that you would have collected, which is going to incentivize people to lower the rents and make them affordable for the people who live here. Because we can't, you know, the fact that they're empty, that's what's decreasing the stock of housing. That's right. what's, you that's know, right. putting a block on people get, you know, in my district alone, we have a deficit of 94,000 units who would like to find somewhere to live, but just simply cannot afford right. with their income to find a place to live. So if you have units that are sitting empty that nobody is renting out, we're going to tax that because you are contributing to increasing rents and a deficit in housing in my district. Yeah, no, 100% support vacancy taxes. They've used them in Vancouver and it's worked out pretty well. Uh, and we have I wish we had them here in California because we have the same problem. We have very expensive rental units and we have enormous amounts of people sleeping in their cars because they can't afford the rents. It's yeah. insane. It's not working. And and you're right about this this idea of capitalism. Here we are supposed to be this country about rugged capitalism, but we're not. Our our markets are all rigged. They're not free. There's They're all not. these built-in like bonuses for the plutonomy that yep. they get. It's like socialism for the rich, right? Socialism for corporations, yeah. that's perfectly fine. Yeah. But everybody else has to like what, pull themselves up by their bootstraps when they don't have boots. Like this yeah. is really where we are. Yeah, and, and I love it when I hear that. I love when uh, right-wingers sort of say, oh, well, you should have just worked harder and pulled yourself up by your bootstrap because nobody works harder than poor people in this country. I agree. Uh, people like Jared Kushner were born on third yeah. base acting like they hit a triple, and it's just not true. Nobody oh, totally works not, yeah. harder than poor people in this country, and nobody tries harder than poor people. I agree. And Jared Kushner is a total POS. This is a guy yeah. that inherited most of that property from his father. His father was the real estate yep. developer, not him. So he yep. didn't, he's not absolutely. Same as Trump. Yeah, same, same as, Trump. as Trump. Neither of them are self-made. But what makes Jared so unbelievably evil, this is a guy that has gone after tenants in a way that nobody else has in the past. He has been yeah. suing ex-tenants from like, that have moved out of his properties three or four years earlier. He's trying to go back and collect on like, so if you if you got out of the contract for whatever reason, you spoke to the property manager, you had to move because of your job, whatever. He's now going back and saying, no, you abandoned your your lease and I want to collect on the remaining four months of it. Or, you know, go down the list of things. Uh, ProPublica did this great report on some of the things that he was doing in uh, Baltimore and in New Jersey. This guy is next level slumlord. It's terrible. Um, Jared Kushner's family company has 15 of these complexes in Baltimore with about 8,000 units. 
Uh, it's by far his biggest concentration of sort of downscale rental holdings in the, in the entire country. And what I found when I looked into the, into the court system, just to check and see if they had any cases in the court system, um, was just an incredible profusion of cases that the company had brought against tenants and former tenants, hundreds and hundreds of cases, uh, more than the court system could even display at one time. And, and basically what the company has been doing for the last five years since it bought these complexes is going after just about any tenant they possibly could to squeeze more money out of them for back rent or having allegedly broken a lease, even in cases, um, as you said, where the tenant really was in the right. But he's going after yeah. these folks in a way that's just so immoral that you can't even believe that it's actually happening. It's, it's like this is, I mean, it's a caricature, right? It's a caricature of, yeah. of, of the American oligarch. Absolutely. Check out Dirty Money on Netflix. Oh, Anybody who's show. watching, that's it's they, they did an episode on Jared Kushner specifically, yeah. and it's like it's, it's basically highlights how we have a system built to allow people like him to abuse poor people. Yeah, this is what he's doing. He's abusing them. He's absolutely abusing them. It's insane. And because then these folks have to hire attorneys to defend themselves with what money? Yeah. And, yeah. and some of the stuff he's going after so is is just so petty and egregious. It's like Jesus, man. Cannot deal with it. Um, I want to also talk about winning strategies. They're a lobbyist firm, and they're also, uh, they do lobbyist bundling, meaning that they take, they take donations from various individuals, they bundle them together, and then they give them to politicians, right? So he, yep. uh, your opponent, is al- also getting money from them. Some of the corporate uh, folks that they represent are Blue Cross, Blue Shield, yep. uh, Valley Health System, which is a pro-profit hospital system, uh, physician sites, et cetera, there in New Jersey, and also Fidelco uh, Group, which is also a a real estate developer. So again, we're seeing a pattern here with real estate development money, and now we're seeing for-profit health industry money coming in. So the reasons he doesn't support Medicare for all are obvious, right? He's getting paid not to. Yeah. And I was definitely going to go into that because uh, he pretends he's on the Medicare for all caucus in Congress. (laughs) And doesn't support Medicare for all. So this is like the sort of like Orwellian government that we're living under. People tell me, um, you know, I I have this debate with people because my opponent is endorsed by the Sierra Club because a lot of these groups sort of have a tendency towards incumbency, right? Yeah, Sierra Club, I have lots of harsh words for for this reason. Yeah. Yeah. And so people say to me, oh, how can you hit this guy on environmentalism when he's endorsed by the Sierra Club? And and I'll say to them, look, he could be endorsed by anybody in the world. He yeah. takes money from ExxonMobil. So how environmentally friendly is he? This guy is not a fighter for the environment. No, he's not. The Sierra Club has a distinct history of endorsing candidates that aren't the most environmentalist uh yeah. I have I have a good friend of mine that served on their executive committee board. She ultimately resigned from that position midstream for the reason that you're mm-hmm. talking about. They were endorsing political candidates that weren't the most environmental out of the two. And it was usually because of the thing you're saying right now. They wanted to stick with somebody that they thought they could win the race. And that usually meant the establishment person, regardless of what their positions were, which is. But that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're a nonprofit. You're supposed to be working on behalf of environmental causes. So get a damn backbone and do the right thing, because if you can't do the right thing, how can anybody else? That is your obligation as far as I'm concerned. Completely agree. And and that's sort of the thing is that a lot of these groups, especially once they become very big, yeah. they have a tendency towards supporting incumbents because yeah. incumbents tend to get reelected. So they sort of think that it's a safer bet 
to side with somebody who may not really share their beliefs, but is going to have access to power. And they sort of think, you know, well, it, as long as we have a seat at the table, that's sort of good right. enough. That's exactly and, right. Yeah. And I think it's egregious. I think I think for this reason, people should stop giving them money because it's too much. I mean, look at the 2016 campaign. They endorsed Hillary Clinton. And she's what? She's pro-fracking? Bernie was, yeah. anti- he's saying ban fracking. Who's your guy? Yeah. Who is yeah. clearly your guy? It's not Hillary yeah. Clinton. Ah, frustrating. Um, so another thing that you discuss in your platform that I think is really interesting is you want to limit the purchasing of political ads until 180 days out from the date of the election. I think this is a yeah. good idea. Um, explain to me how you got to that position and, uh, and, and argue a defense of that for folks that say that that's a... Um, a problem as a First Amendment right issue. Yeah, I don't think that Amendment. it is, but I understand yeah. that some people might think that it is. Absolutely. And, and I also understand that too. The thing about it is that right now we're living in a society where we have an endless election cycle, mm-hmm. specifically when it comes to house seats, because they're up every two years, you're basically perpetually in re-election. Yes, Even when you win, you're always trying to raise money for re-election. And what people kind of get sick of are these endless political ads that are always on your TV telling you who's a scumbag, telling you who sucks, and this, that, and the third. And I think that we would be a much better society if we could put politics aside for some specific period of time. So to me, 180 days, what is that, like six months, basically? No, it's fair, Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's like most people don't tune into their election until maybe two or three months before the election starts. So to me, I think I'm being pretty generous with um, six months. Um, When it comes to a First Amendment rights issue, essentially all we're saying, you know, you can still raise money, you can still be out there, you just can't purchase ads that are going to pollute our airwaves, that are going to annoy people basically, and start to really because that's what politicians like to raise money for is right. all these ads uh, that those are the biggest spenders and they have the most annoying and corrosive effect on our society. So if we could put like a pause button on the political advertising for some period of time until you start to draw near to an election, I honestly just think that our society would be much better, much healthier. We could sort of put politics away for a little while and people would generally be happier. I don't disagree. I think it might help to eliminate some of the dark money coming into the system as well because a lot of the advertising that we're seeing isn't even paid for by the campaigns. It's paid yeah. for by PACs, and we don't necessarily know who is behind these PACs, right? It's, it's dark money. It's yes. trying to influence you, and most of it's pretty negative, and not all of it's entirely true. Yeah, so that's another thing that I've sort of like targeted uh, is because I think that PACs should not even be able to donate to a politician, period. Like if you're a PAC and you're and you're an issue based PAC, you can raise all the money you want and talk about this issue, but you should not be giving money to specific politicians because, again, you're basically buying somebody's support. You are not really saying this person stands for anything other than what I've paid them to stand for. And I just think it has a corrosive effect on on our democracy because that enables the oligarchy. It really does. I 100% agree with you. It's... uh... 
it's almost like you want to put the same sort of restrictions that you see on a nonprofit, that they can advocate for an issue or on behalf of any of their clients' issues related, right? But you can't endorse a politician. You can't yeah. campaign on behalf of a politician. And the reasons yeah. for that are, are really clear. They're trying, to, they're trying to limit quid pro quo because this is corruption. Quid yeah. pro quo is corruption. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about double dipping for a second. I don't think a lot um, of folks are aware that that goes on as well. And this too sure. is a form of corruption. So what exactly absolutely. is double dipping and what can we do about it? Great. So double dipping is a favorite of New Jersey establishment politicians. Yeah. <laughs> and what they like to do is that they have elected officials in multiple different seats. Uh, there was a report that came out where there are 69 public officials in New Jersey who earn more than the governor of New Jersey because they're cobbling together so many different salaries from yeah. so many different wow. Uh, appointed or elected positions. So a great example. Yeah, well, check this out. My opponent's um, legislative director is a five quintuple dipper, right? He is the mayor. He's okay. So he's my opponent's. He's the mayor mayor of Weehawken. That's number two. He's the head of North Hudson Fire and Rescue. He has this really weird one where he's a consultant for the town where my opponent used to be mayor. And there's one that I can't remember, but there he's like, he's a, I think he's the head of the board of education in one of these towns as well. So it's like, he's cobbling together five different salaries. And so what I've done in my anti-corruption plan is I've put an absolute prohibition on any federal employee from holding another elected or appointed position in any state or local government, because I mean, this is really a favorite. Like, New Jersey politicians love this. They will hold four, five different positions in different towns. They're, it's a small clique. So it's like their yeah. friend appointed them to that one. They'll appoint their friend's wife to the other one. And this is just like a favorite of the political establishment in New Jersey. Yeah, that's remarkable. I had no idea the extent of it. Uh, how that, and that's been sort of ingrained in the system for decades, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So like we were talking about roles and developments um, yeah. and how they own um, property on the waterfront, right? Weehawken, where my opponent's uh, district director is the mayor, mm-hmm. they were one of the most corrupt places selling out the interests on the waterfront for so long that um, I I was watching this uh, Joe Rogan podcast with this guy named joey diaz who was raised in this area and the mayor of weehawken when he was a young man was also his school teacher so this was this double dipping goes back (laughs) generations and and joey diaz relayed a story where he saw his school teacher slash mayor perp walked out of the school by the dea because he was selling the waterfront Wow. And and it continues to this very day, continues to this very day. Okay, this is this is like an episode of Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> oh, yeah. Honestly, if you read the reality of it, this is worse than Boardwalk Empire. Okay, so how in the heck do these folks keep getting reelected? I don't understand this. Where are, where are the, do the taxpayers not know that this is what's happening and they just keep voting for these jackasses? Like, I don't understand it. I will tell you exactly how this works, right? 
So like I said, the political establishment in New Jersey is a very small clique of people from the Senate level up to the senators down to your local mayor, to your local county, municipal, city, town hall, right? They're all in the same clique. So this is how it works. All the public officials, if you work at all for any um, local or government position, school teachers, firefighters, mm -hmm. police officers, crossing guards, anybody, you are basically told you are forced to canvas and to donate for your local politicians. If you if you're a garbage collector, you are forced forced not kidding to donate and to participate in the elections of these local officials. And if you don't, you'll be fired. You're kidding. I've been swear to God. This I've is been like told stories related stuff. It's this is like absolutely. a throwback to the 30s. Absolutely. Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall stuff. Honestly, Tammany Hall wishes that they could do what the New Jersey political machine has done, because wow. I've heard stories of people who were, you know, garbage collectors and they get a flyer and they are told you have to go to this event and you have to donate one hundred and fifty dollars to the mayor. And if you don't, you won't have a job next week. <sighs> And they, and they either must do it or they won't have a job. How is and, this and then, legal? It's definitely not legal. It it just works How are by they getting away with it. This is shocking. Because it because it only works by word of mouth. People, <sighs> there's nobody nobody ever nobody ever nobody talks publicizes about this. Yeah, nobody ever talks about it. And but everybody knows that it's going on. Everybody knows that it's going on. And I've seen this happen for generations and generations. And so these very people are a like they're a captive audience and they are mm. forced to vote for these people every single year. So the establishment has a built in group of voters that never fail to go and vote. And be, but beyond that, very few people know who these people are. So like when I'm canvassing, when I was canvassing before this whole Corona thing, the first thing I would ask somebody at the door is, do you know the name of your congressman? Number one question I ask, yeah. over 80% of the people I talk to have no idea who this guy is. That's no idea who he is. Wow. And yeah, and, and but with that 20%, a large number of them are already in the system and they know to vote for him or else. So they don't even need a, a large segment of the population to vote for them, for them to be in power. We have probably over a hundred thousand, over a hundred thousand registered Democratic voters in my district. My opponent regularly wins with thirty to forty thousand votes, so that's like a quarter of the registered Democratic right. voters. With any sort of increase of mobilization of turning people out to vote, yeah, they could be easily defeated. It's just that they have this dedicated base that always turns out. We have to get the non-voters to come and vote. That's I agree with you there. Absolutely. And most of the folks that aren't voting, they're just turned off by the things that we're discussing here today. They are tired of the corruption. They're tired of, of the Democratic Party not really being an opposition party, but more enabling of the GOP and what they want to do. So I understand why um, that's the case. You know, oftentimes here in California, and I would imagine it's the same in New Jersey from what you're telling me, the unions play a big part of that. I'm a union member, so and I've seen it where the, the union leadership wants one thing and they crack the whip down on the membership to support that thing. Um, it doesn't work for me because I'm a very individually minded sort of person, but I've yeah. seen that happen. And you, I think we have to find a way 
to have the opposite happen, meaning that that when a union endorses a candidate or supports a candidate, it should be coming from the union membership, not from the leadership, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the members should be allowed to endorse who they want to endorse, right? And oftentimes it's the opposite thing that's happening. Yeah, I agree. So that's the thing. It's like when I talk to union people, they really like what I'm talking about and they're very on board. But then they also say, you know, you're challenging a Democrat. There's no way that the union itself is going to support you for that very fact. Right. Okay, but here's the thing. And I agree with that. Here's the thing. But that doesn't mean the members can't. I mean, look what happened in uh, Las Vegas this last election cycle. I think this is a prime example. We're here at the Bellagio Caucus. You're obviously with the Culinary Workers uh, Union. I am a Culinary Union member. Okay. So do you think, I'm also a union member, and this is what I want to talk to you about. Your leadership really went after Bernie Sanders pretty hard. I, all right, I'm gonna, I, I know what you're trying to say there. I, the last communication I had for my union said that they are not endorsing. Right, I saw that. I walked into the building, talked to people as we were coming up to caucus. This is my heart. I'm here with Bernie Sanders. No other information from my union. I came here and participated in this Democratic They felt very strongly that Bernie Sanders aligned with their values as union members. You know, these are folks that are, are barely making over minimum wage. So they're they're on the front lines of fighting increases for pay, et cetera. So yeah. I think we need to see more of that. You know, I mean, there, there's a real disconnect and a lot of it has to do with power and politics. None of it has to do yeah. with what's beneficial for the workers inside the union. Right. And I'm pro union. I, I, I want our unions to be stronger in this country. And I think how they become stronger is by allowing for the members to participate in that political process and to ensure that their voices are being heard in a way that makes sense to them. Agreed, completely agree. And and again, it sort of ties back to the same conversation we were having about the Sierra Club. It's sort of, they've yeah. traded the values for a seat at the table. Right. And you sort of have to ask yourself, you know, at what point does sacrificing these ideals lead to an erosion of what you say you're fighting That's right. for. That's right. I think it does right from the get-go. I, I think every time they trade their ideals for political power, they've, they've lost something. They've lost something of themselves. And they've certainly turned off people that are, are participating in that process because they have those ideals in the first place, right? Like, I yeah. would not... I've given money to the Sierra Club in the past. I stopped giving them money after 2016 because I was so disgusted by this. It's like, why should I mm. support you? You're not staying yeah. true to what our ideals are at all. Yeah. You know, um, so what are the parts of your platform do you think are important to discuss that we haven't discussed yet? Well, I mean, the other things that we haven't talked about, I'm a big fighter for Medicare for all. Yeah, I'm a big fighter for actually this is kind of one of the more novel ones is that we have a strong stance on what we're calling community leadership. OK, because my opponent is incredibly inaccessible. He regularly blows off his constituents. Um, I've started trying to tag him with the hashtag no show Albio because he is a complete no show in our district. He will not hold a town hall. He, his stated stance is that he'll never hold a town hall. So we want to let the people know that when I'm elected, I will be an active member of the community. I will hold monthly town halls all across the district so that people have the ability 
to hold me accountable right. for the issues that they may or may not agree with me, right? So right. I'm not afraid of facing accountability for my actions. He absolutely does not want to face accountability for his actions. So I think that that's a real important component of my platform is community leadership. Uh, we spoke about, you know, I do support Medicare for all. My opponent, Orwellian Lee, does not support Medicare no. for all. Yeah. Um, people think that he's an environmental fighter. So, like, people think he's for the Green New Deal. But environmental activists in my district would, you know, know very well that he's not a fighter for the environment. It's one of those things that, you know, like, as a Democrat, obviously, he has to pay lip service and say that he's for exactly. environmental issues. But he's really not. And he no, takes yeah. money from ExxonMobil. So, He's definitely not for yeah. environmental issues. Um, on, on This is another one that I think is very important is that I'm very vocal against Trump's deportation machine. Like I have pledged to close the camps. My opponent who came to this country as a Cuban refugee is pro ICE. And yeah. yeah, and one of the issues that made me want to run against him I'm not surprised is that actually. Yeah. Um, immigration rights activists went to his office and asked him, they didn't ask, would you abolish ICE? They asked him, would you cut funding to ICE at least until the detention center thing is under control? Because this was in the height of the whole like scandal when right. like you're seeing pictures on the on the news and little girls crying and people yeah. are horrified. And he says to people in my district, that is a majority Hispanic district, my district is 54% Hispanic. He says, I would never vote to cut spending to ICE and then caps it off with ICE does great work. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just that's the sort of like, yeah. And, and it's because again, he's very keyed in to the local machinery and the county government makes a ton of money off of these ICE contracts. They take in a lot of money. We actually house the ICE detainees from New York yeah. here in New Jersey. And the county makes a ton of money for every single person that they, you know, yeah. house. And so we've done a lot of work to... Um, raise hell about the deplorable conditions that detainees live in but here in a district that is majority hispanic that almost everybody came here from a different part of the globe you know how could you you know as a politician you should at least have the you know knowledge to say yeah i don't stand for what ice is doing but he can't even do that no, I, you know, there's, there are so many sort of oxymoronic beliefs that occur within the Cuban American uh, community that yeah. it, nothing surprises me in regards to that. Uh, you know, look, we could have a conversation about whether Fidel Castro is an authoritarian. I think that he is. I think that many things that he, he has done are terrible and that they do Agreed. infringe on individual rights and all that stuff. But the other side Absolutely. of that conversation is also that that was born in a it was born from a colonial system in which the poor people were being exploited not only by the wealthy aristocrats in cuba but also by american corporations yeah so, so I like the, the the position i take on this is right and and it's very similar with the thing in venezuela right like mm -hmm. you can have an authoritarian left-wing government 
that is not doing a good job, but that doesn't mean that I want to send our American right. kids overseas to overthrow this government. Like that, that's not, you know, overthrowing no. dictatorships has never served us well. And it's never really not resulted right. in what they say, you know, exporting democracy has not has served nothing to do well. with it. They're looking for yeah. partners in exploitation. Yeah. Point being that yeah. every time they overturn a left-wing government, they're doing it to replace it with somebody that's more corporate, friendly, yeah. and it doesn't matter. And none of them are, are less authoritarian. That's the crazy part. How is ICE less authoritarian than Fidel Castro is? It's not. It's it's more egregious on many levels. But point being is nobody really wants to have in this in, in this in these universes, nobody really wants to have the conversation about why governments like Fidel Castro's were born in the first place. And unless we treat these other symptoms, there's no conversation to be had as far as I'm concerned. All of this surrounds income inequality. All of this surrounds the powerful American corporations, oligarchy, empire, banding together with e these wealthy right-wing aristocrats in these other countries. And they have the same goal. And that goal is exploiting poor people, exploiting labor, exploiting resources, right, to their benefit. So that's, yeah. that's the actual conversation that needs to be had. But it never seems to be had. And this is why... Um, this is, I think, why they brought up the whole Castro thing when it came to the election in Florida between Biden yeah. and Bernie. This was what this yeah. is what it was about. Nobody cared. Nobody cared that Obama said the same thing. The Obama same said thing. the same thing about the the education system system in Cuba, and I'm going to say it too. It is solid. It, they've done a lot to increase uh, literacy within the the state of Cuba, among other things, less income equality. So you you can't really tell me that everything's all bad or all good because that's just yeah. stupid. Yeah, I mean the nuance is death to this establishment because they don't want to have these nuanced conversations. Some things are either horrible all the time yeah. or amazing all the time. So you're right. And I guess I get frustrated because too many voters don't really engage in enough complex reasoning when they're being told these things. Like what I would like to see is just the voters themselves just maybe questioning some of these um, these platitudes that we're told we're all supposed to believe. Right. Question yeah. them. Question the yeah. reasons behind why you're being told this, you know, yeah. like, why is it that in your district that's mainly Hispanic? Why would they elect this guy? Yes, he's Cuban. I get it. But look at what he what he stands for. Is that really serving the interests of the working poor Hispanic folks that mainly make up that population? I'm saying it's not. Yeah, he definitely does not. Right. So. Again, it's and it ties back to what we said before. It's like this tokenism thing. They'll say, look, yeah, we're, yeah. we're upholding right. one of you. So, like, you got to support this guy because obviously if you don't support him, you must hate Hispanics, right? <laughs> Which is like, it's like, no, that's not how this works. Not everybody is, like, monolithic in their beliefs. Like, every community has a variance of beliefs that expand from right to the left every community that's just how it is and and in trying to take away individual agency within a community in this way is is incredibly racist actually in my opinion i don't think yeah. it's because because you're just want to, you just want to listen to the folks that support your position at that point right and then you're going to yes. turn around and say like oh but i i support african americans because blah 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 and it's like well what about all of the african americans that disagree with you do they not have agency they are not entitled to a voice the minute you they say that count. to them, they, they'll, they'll block you on Twitter. That's my favorite thing. They're yep. like, oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Basically. It's so annoying. Um, I want to take a second to talk about Fourth Amendment rights with you, mainly because Ooh, you have a law degree. My favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we, okay, so we've seen a massive erosion of our Fourth Amendment rights. I would say that 
starting with the Patriot Act under George W. Bush, all the way forward. And Obama did nothing to alleviate this. He only added to it. He only ingrained several of those things that Bush had started. And what really kind of slays me is Obama had campaigned against doing that. He said he was going to to uh, reinstate some of the rights that had been taken away, but that didn't happen. So here we are now in 2020, and, and it's gotten worse, markedly worse. What is what is going on here, in your opinion? Why are Americans continually willing to give up these rights in exchange for very little security? I don't I don't understand why this is just growing worse and worse and worse and not getting better. Where's the uproar? Yeah, the tra- the trade off was supposed to be you give up some freedom and you get some security, but that seems to have never really happened. And I completely agree that um, this whole warrantless wiretapping thing, uh, everything that's gone on with the Patriot Act ever and ever since has only eroded our yeah. ability to have a functioning democratic society. This has not worked. It is not working. Um, It's a bad idea. And the Fourth Amendment is literally like one of my favorite ones. Um, It's the like when I was in criminal law class, like that's the stuff I would pay attention to the most. Because essentially what at the end of the at the end of the semester, you basically ask yourself, like, do we even have Fourth Amendment rights anymore? Yeah. And the more you think about it, you kind of don't no. you know um if you if you live near a port of entry into this country meaning any airport your fourth amendment rights are gone yeah because at any port of entry the government can do essentially whatever you. it wants yeah. and what about yeah. the FISA and, courts i mean it, yeah and I mean, so it's really like this call, web that Anyone that's can stretches. accuse you of being a terrorist and do whatever the hell they want with no real basis in anything. That should scare people. Yeah. So it's it's almost like McCarthyism has come full cir- circle. And like we're in a place that McCarthy could have never, right. you know, because McCarthy was essentially just a guy spouting off craziness. <laughs> he didn't actually have the machinery of the government no. to go out and, and listen to technology. people's phone calls. Or, yeah, or the technology. And it's like, you know... I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. Maybe on some things you can get me, but like at the end of the day, we're moving towards this eye in the sky system. Like we have cell phones, right? So literally everywhere you go, there's a tracker on you. Like whether you understand that or not, um, with people who are really good hackers, you know, I, uh, earlier when I got on my, um, desktop, you were like, you have to turn your camera on, right? It, it's not that my camera wasn't on. I have the little sticker on front of my camera because I don't know when somebody's going to try to get into my computer yeah. and try to watch me. That's why I'm against um, internet voting machines. I, com- oh, I do not trust. I do not trust the internet I don't because anything, that. anything that's on a network can be hacked by somebody who understands the system better than you do. That's right. So I just don't trust that we can have um, in a totally connected world and keep our privacy. That's why I'm like a huge fan of Edward Snowden and the things yeah. that he tried to bring to light because he's trying to tell us like, you're losing your privacy in ways that you don't even understand. Yeah, 
I, I use his app Signal. If, if folks don't know what that Me is, too. they need to look it up. Yeah. It's, it's the only way you can communicate with somebody in an encrypted fashion. You should all download it onto your phone and you should be using that for texting and for phone calls. If you, uh, otherwise, you have, yeah. Here's the thing. Facebook is another one. I don't have Facebook on my phone and I refuse to put it there because it's a very invasive mm. app and they have no problem sharing their users' data with any aspect of the federal government or with the NSA. You should, that should bother you. And for folks to say to me, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Well, you know, that might be the case, but do you think everybody that's charged with something is doing something wrong? They're not. The point yeah, being and, is that's the slippery slope we're on. And, and that's the thing is like our, go our government was founded on the idea that it's not, I'm not doing anything wrong. It's like you, the government has to justify its intrusion into my life. I don't have to justify my privacy. I'm, you know, I have a God-given right to privacy. And then you as the government have to justify you coming into my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and it's both parties that are okaying this stuff across the board. And I think people need to be more aware of it. And they need to be, I think they need to be a good sort of paranoid about some of these things because at any given moment, and look, if you think, here's the thing, don't call them, don't always do this calling the manager sort of thing on the right too, because people get really upset about kind of free speech, fourth right or fourth amendment issues with the right. But yeah. they don't seem to understand that that stuff's going to be turned around and used against the left in a much um, larger way because yeah. that's, that's what always happens. Yeah. We are more threatening to them, right? Because we're yeah. not the authoritarians. We're pro-worker rights. We want yeah. less income equality. We want more democracy. That's threatening to the oligarchs. That's threatening to people that are elitists or in places of power, right? Agreed. Completely agreed. It's like if you, whatever you allow people to do to somebody else, you have to understand that one day that will be done to you. So there's no end to justify the means with us. And that's what people should understand. You can't just justify well they're doing it to people i don't right, like no. you know the first yeah. amendment is meant to protect unpopular speech because at the end of the day that's the sort of things you have to protect it's not that's popular right. things that need freedom of speech it's unpopular things that including, require freedom including the left side one so yeah i i get yeah. that and you know also look at the history of where we've seen law enforcement agencies using these tactics to shut down left uh leftist leaders whether it's mlk whether it's many of the black panthers whether it's i mean you just go down the list folks this is not this is not yeah. crazy things that we're talking about here so just be a little yeah. bit paranoid i think that we are in a revolutionary period right now i think that 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 remains to see which way that goes i mean is it going to be more peaceful revolution as it has been until now or is it going to get crazier i think I think it can go either way. I just don't I just don't think people stopping on the path we're on now. If you're if you're fully awake and aware of the things that have been going on in the country, and I think Bernie Sanders running for office in twenty sixteen was a big part of getting people to see stuff, you're not going Agreed. back to sleep. Yeah. You're too aware. Yeah. There's no turning that off once it's been turned on, right? Yeah, and that's kinda of why I agree that Bernie was like such an important figure, despite the fact that he's not in the race anymore, because he activated so many people. Yeah. And I think it would be such a shame if people let that energy go to waste yeah. now, just because Bernie's not in it anymore. Like this fight continues. It will always continues. continue. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I, okay. So let me just say this. I would love to see Nina Turner run for office of the higher kind, not, not back in Ohio again, but I'd like to see her run for president at some point. And I'll say this why. You know what I love about Nina? Nina's a scrapper. And I say that as a term of endearment because I'm a scrapper too. 
You yeah. know what I'm saying? Bernie's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. He's, He's a nice too man. nice. He's too yeah. nice for electoral politics because you need yeah. to be a scrapper. You need to be able to Absolutely. throw the punches that are not necessarily polite or pleasant. Agreed. Agreed. I, I really like Nina Turner. And um, if we had um, a left party that wanted to win, I think that she would make a great running mate, to be yeah. honest with you, because that would... In, in a lot of ways, unify the two parts of the party that would be required to win the presidency. But we can already know that that's probably not the way things are going to turn out. But she absolutely is afraid, is one of my favorites. And I think she is a very strong character who yeah. has what it takes to bring that fight into politics that is required. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I love Nina. Um, well, let me ask you this. There's some talk out there, and this sort of makes sense to me. I've, I've, I've had uh, thoughts about this myself, that Biden isn't going to be the ultimate nominee. I don't see, I don't, okay, so it's clear to me that Biden is in cognitive decline. I've thought that for a good eight or nine months now. I don't think this is a crazy thing. I never believed we would see the day where he'd be our nominee because I saw it when I was covering on the road covering the uh, primaries and caucuses, I saw it. I'm like, if I'm seeing it, every other journalist is seeing this too. The DNC is seeing it. This is not a secret. So how is it? You're going to tell me that Tom Perez, et cetera, don't see it. I don't believe it. They know, they know that this is going to be a bloodbath if he has to run against Trump. So do you think it's possible that they might replace him at convention if we have a convention? So I'm of two minds about it. I, at some in one way, I absolutely do see, see what everybody else clearly sees is that he has trouble stringing sentences together and is not is going probably going to be obliterated by Trump's immaturity because like yeah, Trump feeds exactly. off of those sorts of openings. Exactly. He, he, he loves that. I he mean, loves it. And we've given him the ammunition for it, unfortunately. It's crazy to me. And but also knowing the way that the democratic establishment is again sometimes i think that they prefer to lose to trump yeah, and so and so right. in some ways i i see them i see them completely going forward with biden okay. letting him lose and then having another uh, an ex, uh, an excuse to expand right. the corporatism to expand the wars to destroy the environment yeah and i mean my my entire life is filled with um moderate presidential nominees that lose yeah. and with progressives <laughs> that win so if we had exactly i mean uh, i guess if they wanted to win i could i would see it as more of a possibility but knowing the way that the democratic party party establishment works i also see them completely coming behind biden and saying no yeah. this is how we're doing it no, you're right. They have no problem losing. Look at the track record. It's it's astonishing, really. I mean, every time they run a milk toast moderate, they lose. Like this is that's the history. And I and I think you're right. I think they're well aware they're not going to win this time. I don't think saying Trump's going to get another four years from this deal is even remotely controversial at this point. I don't see how Biden can possibly pull this off. That's just reality. It's not a reality I like at all. I mean, this is why I yeah. fought so hard for Bernie Sanders. But here yeah. we are. I just this is why I'm frustrated. We're going back to that original thing where I'm saying I'm so frustrated with the establishment in the Democratic Party because they just. I don't know. I don't know what the point is. Is it just to keep the donor money in? Is it just to keep feathering their nests? Is that I, is there ideals the like platform it. just not have any value whatsoever? At some point, it seems like it. 
it's uh, it certainly does. I, w I was gonna ask you, well, how would you feel about an Elizabeth Warren? Like, would that be good enough? I think she's really problematic at this point. I would certainly take her over Biden, but I think. I, I don't know what the hell she's been thinking the last three or four months. She really kind of threw in the towel on the left and just alienated so many people. I, so I, I think she's kind of sort of created a toxic feeling towards her, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I would definitely take like I, I can't see myself voting for Biden. I think I have a real problem, not only with the stuff we're talking about, but I have a serious problem with the rape allegations. Yeah, and let me say really yeah. clearly, if you if you insert your fingers into your aides private parts, that is rape as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And I am, I've Absolutely. spoken with Tara. I believe her. I don't think any part of her story is made up or fabricated. So I absolutely cannot bring myself to vote for this man. That's just how it is. It's not going to happen. Um, so if they don't replace him with somebody more viable, um, you know, I was speaking with Jordan Sheraton. He was saying Sherrod Brown would be a good candidate for that. And I think he has a point there. He's from Ohio. He appeals to the Bernie Sanders crowd because he uh, was very much in Bernie's... Um, court the last time around um etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. that's a swing state that would make sense i don't know i don't know all i know is that the path the, the path we're on right now the course we're on right now is is a losing path and yeah, there might I, be time I to correct that agree. course i don't know you know what i'm saying yeah i mean do you, well, you don't think we, elizabeth warren kind of sort of pissed off too many people on the left or like what are your thoughts I mean, I she hasn't burned the bridges with me yet. Like okay. I, I, she was like one of the first people I ever volunteered for, and oh, so okay. I guess I have like fond memories of Elizabeth yeah, Warren. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I definitely, I definitely hear that a lot, and I hear where you're coming from. I definitely see that, especially from a lot of the Bernie, like former Bernie base, that like Elizabeth Warren has kind of like spit on them too many times that they're not willing to go along with her. But I, where I live in New Jersey. People still have a lot of good feelings about Elizabeth okay. Warren and would definitely accept her as like more uh, so than Biden. You know, yeah, probably. Ah, so frustrating, but here we are. Um, Hector, most importantly, if folks want to donate to your campaign after listening to this, where's the best place for them to do that at? Well, I have an act blue. You can okay. go to my website, uh, Osegera2020.com. That's my last name, Osegera2020.com. We have a nice contribution link at the top. If you want to go to tinyurl.com slash Hector2020, you'll be directed to my um, donation page. But also, if you go to albiocres.com, I invite everybody to go to albiocres.com. You will find my donation link posted prominently there as well. Just so folks that are not getting why I'm laughing, that's your opponent. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed it is. <laughs> that's genius. You should buy up every domain calling him a name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? It's like he's been in office for like well over a decade. So yeah, like if time. you don't have your own website, like I'm sorry, <laughs> like it's mine now. No, you're right. I mean, that's, but this is how comfortable he is in his position. He thinks that he can't lose it. It really almost reminds me of, uh, and I can't think of his name, that AOC ran against. He felt that Joe way too. Joe Crowley. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Joe Crowley. Yeah. Exactly. I get a lot of comparisons. I get a lot of comparisons with that guy, honestly, because it's the same sort of story, like running no sort of serious campaign, yeah. just sort of expects that he's the man and is going to win forever. Yeah. It's it's insane. He just doesn't. He didn't see that coming, right? So I, I yeah. hopefully um, you prevail in this election because that guy does need to be replaced. You have a great platform, 
Um, and the fact that you're actually willing to have a town hall and listen to your constituents, that should be everything. I mean, these politicians currently, they really think that their constituents work for them. And it's the other way around. You're a public service person. You work for the people in your district. They are your employer. And it's just grotesque to pretend the opposite is true. So I hope that he loses on that alone. And I love that you have his website. That's <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, Hector. Thank you for having me.